Stay tuned next for Resistance Roundtable here on WPKN in Bridgeport. Welcome to Resistance Roundtable, broadcast on WPKN the second Saturday of each month, where we engage in conversation about local and nationwide organizing for a more just and democratic America during this pivotal and dangerous moment in our nation's history. Hosting today's show is Ruth Ann Baumgartner, who's a longtime instructor in literature and writing at Central Connecticut State University member of the Executive Committee of the Connecticut Conference of the American Association of University Professors. Ruth also serves as a member of the Board of Directors and a theatrical director herself with the Westport Community Theater. Ruth Ann is here with us in the studio again this morning. Hey, Ruth. Hi, Scott. Richard Hill, who's joining us by phone this morning from the Falkland Islands, (laughs) hosts first Tuesday Rainy Day Radio an organic farm stand, and as a rotating host of Mike Check, Richard is a musician, teacher, and mentor with Youth Radio Connecticut. Hey, Richard, how are things? Good, good. I'm. Uh, I am leading the uh, a new independence movement here on the Falklands, so there might be some uh, interesting news coming out of here soon. We'll have to devote a program to that shortly. That's good news. <laughs> I'm Scott Harris, host of WPKN's weekly public affairs program, Counterpoint, airs Monday evenings, and executive producer of the syndicated show Between the Lines Radio News Magazine, heard here on WPKN and around the country. And right now, we're very happy to welcome uh, to our program Professor Horace Campbell, who will be joining us to discuss the wider implications of the Supreme Court's recent ruling ending affirmative action in college and university admissions. And Horace Campbell is professor of African-American studies and political science at Syracuse University and is author of the book Global NATO and the Catastrophic Failure in Libya. His recent article that we'll be talking about this morning is titled United States Military, White Supremacy and Affirmative Action. And that was published on the counterpoint dot or counterpoint, uh, excuse me, counterpunch.org website uh, on July 3rd. Professor Campbell, thank you so much for making time to uh, join us on Resistance Roundtable this morning. Thank you for inviting me. So we're happy you could be here to talk about this really important issue. As many of our listeners are, are well aware, um, on June 29th, the Supreme Court's six right-wing extremist uh, justices ruled that the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and Section 6 of the 1964 Voting uh, Civil Rights Act bars the use of racial preferences by public colleges and universities, striking down 45 years of Supreme Court precedents and effectively ending affirmative action in the U.S. In her scathing dissent, Justice Ketanji Jackson-Brown or Ketanji Brown-Jackson, I should say, condemned the majority view, saying, quote, with let-them-eat-cake obliviousness, today the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat, but deeming race irrelevant in law 
does not make it so in life. Professor Campbell, as we begin the conversation on affirmative action, uh, we'd like you to share with our audience your view of the consequences for U.S. higher education that will result from the Supreme Court's ruling striking down uh, this longstanding affirmative action and noting that the high court's majority carved out an exception for military academies to retain the use of affirmative action to recruit and train military officers to fight and die in U.S. wars. And I know we'll be talking a lot more about that this morning as well. But what's your overview, Professor Campbell? Thank you so much for initiating this discussion. This discussion is bringing to the forefront the challenges of the meaning of higher education in the United States at the present moment. Is higher education going to be for the restructuring of society? Is higher education going to be meeting the challenges of global warming, of meaningful social, economic, and ecological change in the society? Or will the universities and higher education serve the needs of the corporate elements? This is really the crossroads that we're in, in relationship to the meaning and content of education in the United States of America. But higher education cannot be separated from education in general and education in the community. So what the Supreme Court ruling is trying to bring about at the national level what has been going on in communities all over the country. In the past 30 years, there's been vigorous efforts to resegregate the societies and to ensure that the black, brown, and oppressed sections of the population do not have access to education or higher education. The Supreme Court ruling is making national what has been going on in California, in Michigan. And all of the statistics have shown that since the decision that was made in California in the 1990s about affirmative action, I think in Berkeley and in, in, in UCLA, the numbers of African-American students in those institutions of higher learning have dropped from 9 to 10% to 2%. Similarly in Michigan. So what we have is the resegregation of the society and blocking of opportunities for higher education. But this week, we had in, in two states that not only should we um, block access to higher education, but we should block access to resources. So uh, I think in Wisconsin and another state, there are discussions about minority scholarships and the fact that these should be unconstitutional in the United States of America. So the, 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 the conservative, neo-fascist elements would like the society to be rolled back to the era before Jim Crow. And the challenge for resistance radio, for people in your audience, people in the university and the school system there is to see how will they reorganize their view of education to challenge the direction that this country is going in. Thank you for that, Professor Campbell. 
Our co-host, Ruth Ann Baumgartner, has our first uh, question for you. And Richard Hill is also with us, and he'll be joining our conversation shortly. Hello. Uh, good morning. Um, I was, uh, I, I believe I was swept by existential despair when I read your uh, recent article, uh, because I've been in higher education for my whole life, and I think we're about the same age, so uh, you can imagine how many years that means in in higher education, and I have been since my student days uh, a proponent of um, uh, affirmative action or whatever uh, could be made to exist to uh, create equal access to um, an essential, what I consider an essential for uh, any kind of um, growth in society and the development of justice in society. So as I read your article, um, I I wondered, first of all, what actually do you see as an alternative to a program um, and approach that that has taken a lot of people in through the through the processes of higher education and to lives in which they're very effective. Thank you for that observation. What one is seeing across the country is not only the rollback of affirmative action, but the rollback of investment in education in general and the privatization of education so that many universities, especially private universities, are saying that schools of education are no longer viable departments or schools within their universities and that states should cater for public education and educational training. And at the same time, those states, state governments are cutting back on resources. And we see in all the major cities in the United States, every major city, the disparity in access to quality, meaningful education. So the challenge at the level of political organizing is to be able to look at the, 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 the problems with affirmative action in relationship to the investments in society for health, education, housing, transportation, and most importantly, for environmental repair. Because we cannot continue to have a university that is financed by profits from the private sector that is linked into the military information financial sector, which derives its existence from bullying everyone in the world. And I think what we try to do in this article is to explain why in the decision of the Supreme Court on the 29th that there was an exception for the military academy. And it was significant that in her dissenting opinion, Justice Sotomayor pointed to the fragging in the United States military in Vietnam, because I think if you said you're the age that you say you are, then you would have come out of that period of the Vietnam struggle and the struggles for peace in Vietnam. And in that struggle in the Vietnam period, when they had this thing called fragging, where black soldiers were killing white officers because black 
soldiers are being used as cannon fodder, Sotomayor directly addressed this question to say the United States is running into a problem of insecurity in its military ranks, and that's why they had to make an exception. And they call them out. And none of the major media is drawing attention to this point about the, this discussion, because there is already a real challenge of the future of the United States military and its present composition, where we have a white officer corps, 73% of the top officers are white, when 43% of the rank and file is non-white. So they have a problem, in, and that problem is based to accumulation, that problem is based to the private military contracting system, and disposing of black bodies as cannon fodder. And these are issues that are not being discussed at the national level in relationship to this discussion over affirmative action. Yes, I, I agree with you about that. I think it's a it's a really an urgent problem. I'm just trying to see how uh, a program that was designed to improve something can be made to continue improving it rather than than being perverted in, in this way. Well, I wanted to give um, our co-host Richard Hill an opportunity to ask a question or make a comment. Richard, uh, we have something for Professor Campbell here. Yes, good morning, Professor Campbell. Um, I wanted to know, your article focuses a lot on the uh, issue of following up on what you just were talking about, the, the how the systemic racism in the military is such a, an important feature of our overall system of inequity and racism in the society at large. So I wonder if you could um, help us connect the systemic racism that you've identified in the military to the issue of affirmative action and the supreme, or, or actually, should I say, the extreme court's decision to strike down affirmative action. Okay. Well, thank you so much for that question. Let us step back a bit to see that this aspect of affirmative action, of race-conscious decision-making for entrance in university, is only one variant of affirmative action. The United States economy and the university is built on affirmative action for the rich. The university structure, especially the extreme variant that is called the legacy admission process, is a form of affirmative action that entrenches the children of the 1% in the networks of accumulation and domination in this country. So there is affirmative action for the rich, and the way this society is organized is to reproduce those networks to ensure that they have access to the information, the power to make decisions. So when there is a discussion about affirmative action for black people to enter the boardroom, that's only one aspect of affirmative action. The other affirmative action that we want to bring attention to is affirmative action for the white conservative elements in the society. The affirmative action for the white conservative elements is based on the fact that the federal government rewards those people 
because they keep the society stable for capital. That was the situation during Jim Crow. At that point, the United States liberal elements, such as Franklin D. Roosevelt, who did the, unleash the New Deal, they were quite willing to go along with the New Deal when they did not touch the segregationist policies in the South. Well, what the civil rights movement did in the United States is, no, we will not have that form of segregation. And one of the reasons we have the struggles over education in this country at the moment is that the ruling elements do not want young people to understand what happened between black students, white students, Chicano students, Latino students, Asian students in the 60s and 70s to build a new consciousness about equal access to education. Now we have a situation where this society is being repolarized again, and we are on the precipice of something very dangerous, where the extreme ideas of neo-fascism is inside the military, and we saw that in January the 6th. And those are the very same people who have access to government contracts. Those are the very same people who benefit from affirmative action in the military for white conservative elements. Thank you, Professor Thank you. Campbell. Um, you wanted to follow up, Richard? Uh, no, I, I think that's yeah, that that's very uh, incisive, and I, I appreciate the answer. We are speaking this morning here on Resistance Roundtable with Horace Campbell, Professor of African American Studies and Political Science at Syracuse University, and we're talking about his recent article titled "United States Military: White Supremacy and Affirmative Action." That was published on the counterpunch.org website on July 3rd. And Professor Campbell, as we've been talking about um, the issue of affirmative action, um, I wanted to ask you about a series of decisions that this um, extremist court has made over uh, the past year or more, um, including removing federal protection for abortion rights, weakening environmental regulations, striking down gun safety laws, ruling that a Colorado non-discrimination law that made it illegal for businesses to discriminate against LGBTQ customers was unconstitutional, and most recently blocked President Biden's plan for student debt relief. The Supreme Court appears to be in the process of trying to turn back uh, the clock on basic civil and human rights that have been fought for and won by successive generations, as you pointed out a moment ago. These rulings are mostly out of step with the views of strong majorities of the American people and really defy the legislation their elected representatives and government have ratified. If reforms to the Supreme Court aren't initiated, Professor Campbell, and, and I'm talking about examples such as uh, ex expanding the number of justices on the court or imposing term limits, isn't democracy itself in jeopardy? Why do you place it as a question in the future? Yes, yes, that's a question for the future. Why do you place it as a question in the future? The realities that you've laid out point to the fact that there is a constituency in this society of billionaires 
who finance the Federalist Society, who dominate the law schools and the professorships in law schools and the law students, and they are very active. And none of the liberal billionaires have spent the amount of money that they've spent in the Federalist Society to influence the decisions in the country. And what they have done is to make these rulings in the Supreme Court and then the right-wing elements, as we've seen in Wisconsin, come up in the local legislature and say, yes, well, we do not want to have student um, minority scholarships. Or they will say in the North Carolina legislature that, well, we do not want to have black people to have the right to vote. So this is a multi faceted uh, struggle that whether it is the LBGTQ, student loan, the environment, the right to assembly, it, it means that the resistance that you're talking about from your radio must be transformed into a multi-front struggle so that the gays and lesbian brothers and sisters in Connecticut who are opposed to the ruling of the Supreme Court will not sit idly by when the military talk about don't ask, don't tell, but at the same time support a government like the Museveni government in Uganda that passed legislation to kill gays and lesbians and there's a tacit agreement between the government of the United States that we will say something very small against Museveni but Museveni will be the battering ram for U.S. imperialism in Africa. So there has to be a new level of sophistication at the level of analysis and action by the progressive forces around the resistance. And we must transform from resistance to having a clear project of how to reorganize this society. We, cannot, we can no longer be saying we're against the make America great again forces and then we support the bankers who are the precipice of taking us to the next stage of making millions of workers um, more hungry and poor in the United States. I think it's clear we have to relearn the lessons of the civil rights movement and mobilize and employ nonviolent civil disobedience if we are going to uh, preserve what's left of our democracy. Uh, Ruth Ann, do you have another uh, question or comment for Professor Campbell? Uh, yes, Professor Campbell, I think I'm, I'm going to come out of my own personal left field again. Um, I've been thinking a great deal about the power of, um, I suppose, private enterprise, the corporate um, uh, collaboration, uh, the power of money to sell students on the idea that if they want to succeed in life, they have to major in a STEM course. Uh, and as far as I can see, that means the only letter left out of STEAM is the A, which is the arts. Um, and the liberal arts in, in colleges are suffering in terms of enrollment as students do what they believe to be in their own interest and major in the in engineering and uh, economics and um, whatever whatever this is uh, science in order to in, to in order to be successful in life and what they miss because I have to confess that 
my, ac my academic career has been in the liberal arts. What they miss is the study of the very um, cultural phenomena and cultural history that informs the development of a culture and that enables people to develop their own uh, ideals, their own criteria for success, and they all go in pursuit of uh, concrete programs rather than programs that would develop their ability to understand so that when when you have a uh, when you take a look at what's happening in society you bring a wide and varied perspective because you have I can see from your work done wide and varied reading as well as focused uh, research but the students that we're processing through our colleges aren't encouraged to do that. They aren't, they aren't encouraged to pursue the very studying that would enable them to develop their own ability to think and their own ability to, to uh, analyze what's going on around them. And so they will listen to the loudest voice and do what they're told uh, by that voice. Do you think that's true or is it just a paranoid liberal arts person? It, it, is, it is what they are attempting to do. But reality is facing them in a very in a very concrete way. Let's take what is happening to the air in the past week where we had this wildfire in Canada. And people would tell you if you go outside that you um, it's like smoking three packs of cigarettes per day, per day. Now, if we're training engineers and they're focusing on STEM, you cannot train engineers that do not look at public health and the necessary um, safety procedures for even those engineers to survive. So the, the, the fact is there has been a concerted effort to dumb down the youth. And I think what we've seen in the past five years is that the ruling elements were really scared by the Black Lives Matter movement because the Black Lives Matter movement brought about a new form of organization that was bottom-up, multiracial, multi-ethnic, intergenerational, that scared the ruling class from dealing with the question of systemic and structural racism. So the, the, what people will talk about is affirmative action, but they will not talk about structural racism. They will not talk about racial capitalism, and they will not talk about why we are at the point where capitalism stands in the path of the future of humanity. We hear them talking about artificial intelligence being a danger, but they're not talking about how artificial intelligence is being deployed for military purposes to fight a war against China. Why should the citizens of the United States be fighting against China? Why shouldn't we be talking with the Chinese working people about the clean air that the Chinese people need and that we need to have an international organization dealing with cleaning up the environment. So yes, I am pushing for, pushed for everywhere we must be talking about an international bank for reconstruction and reparations because we should be talking about abolishing the World Bank and the IMF that feeds the billionaire class by using the dollar as a weapon against everyone in the world. And we should be preempting the fall of the dollar by setting up the basis for international cooperation before we enter this war that we are being driven into.
Thank you very much. Richard Hill, you, you have a question for Professor Campbell. Yes. Um, I mean, there's so many provocative points in your article, your counterpunch article. Uh, it's hard to pick one, but I, I will just, uh, as we talk about solutions to the problems that you have raised, I'm wondering if you could expand on the point that you, you made, which I'll quote it, the complacency of the liberal establishment has been shattered by aggressive supremacist elements. Well, the, 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 the complacency is the fact that the dollar has been the currency of world trade for the past 78, 79 years, and that is now coming to an end. And therefore, the ruling class could do whatever it wanted because of the military management of the international system. The military management of an international system means that the United States use force and military against peoples of the world to keep their currency in the United States dollar. But Russia, Venezuela, Iran, China, Cuba, all the countries in the world, and now we see countries like Saudi Arabia and Iran um, looking to join up with BRICS, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. What we are calling for the progressive forces in the United States to do is to pay more attention to the interconnection between local struggles and international struggles and the military deployment of force to keep the standard of living of the United States what it is. And we should be breaking the investment in the United States military and go back to what Seymour Melman said, we should dismantle the United States military and convert the military information complex to serve human beings. That's when we'll see the society starting to develop. The society is going to stagnate and move to fascism if we do not move in that direction. Following up and just asking if you, if you think uh, there is a role for the liberals, who you said have uh, their complacency has been shattered, liberals and pro-democracy activists, and we've seen quite a many, many of them even appearing on uh, corporate media, uh, if you listen closely, you'll you'll hear even you know former Republicans expressing alarm at the developments, the move toward fascism in our country. But do you see a role for them in this uh, this coming clash with neo-fascist white supremacists? And do you think they they have a role, or they simply might not have the stomach or conviction for the type of fight that is coming? I. I, I think the extent to which they have a role is the extent to which they are willing to step back and understand the direction of what is going as the society is driven to war. The extent to which they have a role is to take, for example, the billionaires in Connecticut and the billionaires in that region. How much time and money do they spend to understand the need for a peace project and to disinvest from the military and from a political party such as the Democratic Party that finances the white supremacists. I use, I, in my article, I use the example of the uh, North Carolina. North Carolina 
has 100 counties. North Carolina has one of the biggest military bases in the United States, Fort Bragg. There are seven counties surrounding Fort Bragg. Of those seven counties, I think six of those are run by conservative Republicans. Those counties and all of the business in those counties derive their juice and oxygen from government contracts, which is linked to the military base. Would it be up to the Democratic Party to say we are not going to give government contracts to people who support MAGA and want to undermine the Constitution? Many people would not understand why is it that a special psychological operations officer from Fort Bragg would lead a busload of 100 persons from North Carolina to the January 6th rebellion. That is because of the integration of the right wing. But will the liberals finance research in the Democratic Party to say, yes, if you really want to bring back North Carolina out of the ranks of the Republican, the same thing with Texas, with Fort Hood, I don't remember its new name, or in, in Florida, around the southern, uh, the central command base, Fort MacDill. There are billions of dollars that goes to the right wing. So the, we see in the news where the Koch brothers is saying they're spending $75 million to ensure that Trump does not um, get the candidacy of the Republican Party in the primary. Why don't we see investment of a similar type among those who call themselves liberals to see this country should not go toward fascism and we should put our minds and our brains and our resources to, to stopping this country moving towards fascism. Thank you for that, Professor Campbell. I, I just have one more question, and this really goes to the point of your, your recent article, the title of which I'll remind our listeners is United States Military White Supremacy and Affirmative Action published on the uh, counterpunch.org website. In your article, you note the disturbing rise of white supremacy in the U.S. military, observing, as you just mentioned, that both retired and active-duty military soldiers uh, participated in the January 6th failed coup attempt at the Capitol that killed five people and injured hundreds of others. What's the danger for our nation if these white nationalists and right-wing ideologues in the military are allowed to remain there? And should we be demanding that the president, the Pentagon, Congress take action against this threat? Yes, but our demands should come out of public education about the threat. The media has done a good job in exposing the Michael Flynn and how Michael Flynn became the religious um, activist that he is, and the role of Michael Flynn in the January 6th events. What we need is for the progressive forces to spend some more time parsing out the differences in with the military. The, the, the Pentagon is aware of this danger because they have um, appointed, they have, they have put forward Charles Brown to be the next chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff. And they've been tinkering around question of diversity, ex- 
equity and inclusion, which is what universities and corporations do not to address the question of racism in this country. I think the part of the left is to be able to carry out much, much more concerted education about the dangers of neo-fascism, racism, and conservatism. In the same article, I mentioned that 500 former generals and admirals are linked up with the conservative elements in Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates working as military contractors. We have to break the cycle of how these forces, through the Association of the United States Army, as former officers, are in the grave retreat to get government contractors, and how the universities themselves, in their curriculum, and this is a point that I should have made in the article much more explicitly, that the, 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 the Supreme Court exempted the military academies. But what is taught in the military academies are the very same conservative racist ideas that produce Michael Flynn. So I think our, our, our work is so fundamental at this point that I, I think we're equal to it. And I think part of the ro- role of radio stations like yourselves, communities like yourselves, universities, schools, churches, mosques, and synagogues is how we should put our brains and spirits together to stop fascism in this country. Well said. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Professor Campbell. Uh, enjoyed your article and uh, you know, c- certainly sobering points that uh, we, we need to think deeply about. And uh, we'll hope to uh, stay in touch with you and have you back. Um, so, well, thank would, you and keep up, keep up the good work. And, and to my sister who spoke about the university, let's talk about how we can decolonize the university and repair the curriculum to make the curriculum serve students and not serve corporations. I'm with you on that. Thank you again, Professor Campbell. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's uh, Professor Horace Campbell, uh, Professor of African American Studies and Political Science at Syracuse University. Um, Scott Harris here with uh, co-host Richard Hill and Ruth Ann Baumgartner on Resistance Roundtable. And Richard Hill brought to our attention an online uh, video message from former U.S. Labor Secretary Robert Reich that uh, we'll bring to you right now. And... uh, and then we'll have a, a brief discussion before we conclude today's program. Here it is. Republicans claim they love America. We love America. We love America. I have faith in America. I believe in America. I love our country. But they sure don't seem to like the American people. If you're not happy here, then you can leave. They consistently oppose reforms that a majority of Americans believe would make their lives better, like raising the minimum wage, paid family leave, and student debt relief. And these supposedly America-loving Republicans also seem to hate American cities, which is where 80% of Americans live. Crime-infested rat holes. Disgusting. They're a disaster. I can't comprehend how people live there. So they must love rural America, right? Uh, not so much. Republicans have historically tried to block Medicaid expansion and cut its funding, which rural Americans have especially benefited from. They've sided with big ag over independent farmers. And they're continually trying to cut food stamps, 
which rural Americans depend on even more than those in cities. So maybe it's the land itself they love. Except that while in office, Donald Trump ruled back more than 100 environmental regulations, making it easier to pollute America's air, water, and land. And he opened about 2 million acres of federally protected and culturally significant land to oil drilling. So what's left? I know, the brave men and women who defend this country. Uh, I'm really grasping at straws here. Sadly, Republicans are increasingly rejecting America's core principles. They're attacking freedom of speech with book bans. The attempted banning of books here in America. They're attacking freedom of assembly with laws restricting protests. And they're rejecting the separation of church and state. We should be Christian nationalists. And I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk. Put on the full armor of God. Let's pray together, may we? Republicans are even shunning democracy itself, denying election results, passing laws that make it harder to vote, and kicking out legitimately elected lawmakers they disagree with. It's time to stop letting Republicans claim the mantle of patriotism without actually being patriots. Patriotism means loving freedom. The freedom to make your own healthcare choices. The freedom to choose who and how you love. Freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom to unionize. We are still here and we will never quit. Patriotism also means wanting Americans to be free from the fear of gun violence and free from crushing student debt. Above all, patriotism involves strengthening our democracy. True patriots don't put loyalty to their political party above their love of America. True patriots don't support an attempted coup. Now is the time for the rest of us to reclaim patriotism and affirm its true meaning. Well, that was a, a recent video message put together by uh, former U.S. Labor uh, Secretary Robert Reich, currently a professor of public policy at the University of California at Berkeley. And uh, it was called Republicans Don't Own Patriotism. Richard, uh, thanks for bringing that to our attention and uh, bringing that to our airwaves this morning. I know we have time for a brief discussion about the points raised by uh, uh, former Secretary Reich. Uh, did you want to kick that off? I played it on uh, July 4th on the, my radio show on First Tuesday. And I was thinking, well, I might get some calls on this from from disgruntled uh, people who identify as Republicans. And what I would have said to them is just come back and, and dispute any of the points made in that presentation. Do you actually deny that you support the, the things that Robert Reich says you support? And if so, then congratulations. Step over to the, to the side of light as opposed to darkness. I, I think this is the type of activism in media that we need right now. And I'll just leave it at that. Ruth Ann, a comment on the points raised by Robert Reich in that message. 
Uh, well, I, I'd like to talk about the very fact of Robert Reich. Reich, he's such a wonderful phenomenon. And he, he reminds me a little bit. In the, uh, Once upon a time, I was teaching a short story by Nadine Gordimer, the South African writer. And sh- the short story dealt with apartheid, which was still the practice in South Africa at the time. And my students didn't know what apartheid was. And so I gave them a straightforward definition and a couple of examples. And a student in the back of the room was getting more and more upset. But he wasn't saying anything. Finally, I called on him. I said, is, is there a difficulty back there? And he said, who knows about this? Uh, you know, I thought everybody. But that's what Robert Reich does so well. He's, he, takes, he takes things that are kept carefully. I'm just hitting this one. He, he takes things, pieces of information that are carefully kept separate in the media and in the way that people study and the way that people are trained to think, carefully kept separate and juxtaposes them with wonderful cartoons so that you have a, a, a funny visual representation to reinforce a very serious message. I think he's a genius and I think he should be uh, sainted. Um, and, and I think that instead of pledges of allegiance, or if we still say those, there should be Robert Reich moment every moment in every morning in every school, because he makes, he makes you think, and he makes you think about things you do that you should already be aware of, but very probably are not. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm glad, uh, Richard brought that message to us because the points raised, as Richard said, are, are not partisan so much, really. It's it's pointing out what the Republicans stand for these days. And as uh, Joe Biden recently said about the Supreme Court, this is not a normal Supreme Court. Yet he refuses to do anything about it, to address it, unfortunately, you know, regarding court expansion or term limits. But I think at every turn, we really have to point out this is not a policy dispute by one party against another. This is an attack on the fundamentals of our democracy, uh, an attempt to burn the Constitution down and destroy democracy. And as our guest, uh, Professor Campbell, said, we have to keep in mind that the elements in the Republican Party that are are now leading that party are fascists. They uh, have adopted uh, all these things that... Uh, I think our, our checklist of what uh, Jason Stanley and Ruth Ben-Ghiad and a number of other scholars, Snyder at Yale University, all the, you know, the hallmarks of a fascist movement, a, attack on the elites, attack on public education, uh, the promotion of racism and uh, scapegoats and attacks on people different than you. I mean, there's a whole checklist. And... Robert Reich touched on many of them in that message. But the, the, the fact that we have a Republican Party that now embraces uh, blatant racism and one-party rule that uses the tools of voter suppression, gerrymandering, political violence, invalidating majority votes on referendums, terminating elected district attorneys, defunding city councils and other public officials that the GOP views as enemies— I, this is thug-like activity. This is not normal. And I think the Democrats fail time and again to really make that point. We really have to talk about the attack on democracy and not so much, you know, these policy differences, the banning of books. I mean, geez, there's just so many things to pick from. It's it's quite alarming 
to uh, put them all on a list, which I'm trying to do right now. Richard, <laughs> did you want to comment further here? Uh, yeah, I guess I would try to uh, expand the, the conversation. The attack on democracy, I think also, I think as Professor Campbell was pointed out, is, is really linked to the, the accumulation of wealth or the promotion of, of that accumulation of wealth by, I, I wouldn't even call it the 1%, I would call it the tenth of 1% of the population, the billionaire class. The policies that the Republicans are promoting and that Robert Reich points out are expediting that sort of accumulation. It's contributing to the economic stifling of a real democratic system. A democratic system, you have to look at it, I think, in a broader sense than just the, you know, the right to vote and uh, the right to assembly and the freedom of, freedom of religion, the, the tenets that we regard as, as crucial to our, our so-called democracy. You have to look at it, I think, in terms of how the society promotes the well-being across the board of people, and that includes their economic viability. And that is being denied. It has been denied for decades and, I guess, from the beginning of the founding of this country, but more and more so today. And I think that that has to be included in the conversation. So when you link that, the economic struggles of the people in the country, to the civil rights issue, then I think you have a very powerful movement that can uh, bring everybody together. And just, uh, you know, we've been talking about the Supreme Court and affirmative action this morning. And, you know, you have examples of blatant corruption within the Supreme Court that doesn't even have an ethics code where you have billionaires like Harlan Crow and Paul Singer, you know, uh, really rewarding. I, I wouldn't say they're buying off their votes on the Supreme Court, but when it comes to Justice Alito and uh, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, you know, there are already extremist right-wing ideologues, but they're being rewarded by these billionaires, and it really, I think it brings together this, uh, uh, this, this circle of influence that has really taken over uh, vast parts of the government. It's, it's taken it over so clearly and easily that you can't even say money under the table anymore. It's not money right over the table. <laughs> we are out of time. We'll be back next month with another edition of Resistance Roundtable.